Well, good morning again. Will was even reminding us as uh, he was praying for this upcoming week and our time with a whole catalog of different people, and that means a catalog of different kinds of relationships. So I, this, is, this is what I want to put kind of forward to us as we're starting this, this time. I don't doubt that no few of us, perhaps even all of us, know something of what it means to be hmm, in a relationship with someone when it's all about them, right? When it's all one-sided. I think we all know what that's like, and it's not entirely pleasant, especially the longer it goes that way. Uh, When we're having conversation, the theme of the conversation is their concerns. There's very little interest expressed in ours. Um, We begin perhaps to want to express something of where we are and how we are doing. And inevitably, in the course of that attempt, they interrupt, interjecting their opinions and what's going on with them, just kind of cutting off that opportunity. Uh, They rarely ask how we are. When we hear from them, it's usually because of something that they need. It's a one-sided thing. The, The relationship is ultimately all about them. And as a consequence of that, again, as the longer that goes, we find ourselves feeling just naturally, just you can't help it, you find yourself feeling used and unloved. So here's my question. Is it possible that the Lord himself, as he thinks about our relationship with him, feels like that? It's all one-sided. We're not really concerned about his concerns. Is it possible that perhaps, can I put it this way? We, we, we are in an immature relationship with Jesus. It's very possible. I know it's true of me. Well, here's the beauty of it. He and his grace and his love for us is inviting us beckoning us, opening up a way out of this, this immaturity and this one-sidedness into something vibrant and rich and real. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew 6. It's where we were last week. It's where we're going to be this week, and the plan is even next week in this little mini-series on the topic of Jesus on prayer. So this is a passage I know it's familiar to no few of you. Uh, it's oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Rightly understood, it's probably better called the Disciples' Prayer, given to us by the Lord. Uh, and it's in the flow of, well, I'll touch on this later, it's in the flow of what's oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we see here as, as uh, recorded for us by Matthew in his Gospel. So this, and again, if you're trying to find this, the first of the Gospels, first of the books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 6 is where we are. I'm just going to read, you see on the screen, verses 9 through 13. That's, that's where we are here, here today. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Can we pray? Lord, thank you for giving us this model prayer. You know how we need this guidance, and we need it again and again and again and again, whether this is the first time or the hundredth time that we have sat and thought about uh, these words in, in this prayer that you gave to, uh, to your disciples then and, and still now in this very moment. Jesus, we have been brought into the pre- your presence, the presence of a holy God this morning in the call to worship and in the psalm that we heard confronted with your holiness, uh, a need, a profound need for the confession of our sin Therein, being reminded of your great grace and your abundant, astonishing, amazing love. And we ask that out of all that, because of your love, you would teach us. You would teach us to pray, teach us what it means that we might come and mature uh, in this relationship that you have initiated, that you have brought us into that it would be something vibrant and and real and our prayer life would be vibrant and real with that too. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I want you to think with me about the Jerusalem temple for a moment as it stood in the first century, okay? So uh, this is King Herod the Great. Uh, It was one of his many architectural projects, probably the crowning achievement of all that Herod the Great uh, set his mind to do. He began the the enlargement of the temple precincts in 6 BC. He enlisted some 10,000, if you get your head around this, 10,000 skilled craftsmen. It wasn't actually finished until 63 AD, And the bummer is, that's just seven years before the Romans came in to put down an uprising and destroyed it. So it didn't have a lot of time, really, to the people to enjoy this thing. But one of the things about this temple that you can still see today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can still see this today, is what's referred to as the Stairs of Ascent on the southern part of the temple precincts. These stairs, roughly 200 feet Why? West to east, okay? And these stairs is what you would ascend as a pilgrim from whatever point of the compass on the map you were coming from. If you're a pilgrim coming there to worship at the temple, you would go up these stairs of ascent to make your way up to temple, up up to worship, up, up to pray. Now, the interesting thing about these steps, 200 feet wide, is the variation of the depth of the steps, And you can still see this today. Some of them, it's just one foot in depth. Others, as much as two feet, and maybe some even a little bit in between. And there doesn't seem to be any pattern to it, any rhyme or reason as to why this one's one foot and why this one's two feet. But what it does is this. It means literally, as you're making your way up up the ascent to the temple, you literally have to watch your step. Right? You literally have to watch your step. And, and, and the thought is, guides will tell you as you're there on the stairs of ascent looking at this, again, you can do this still today, as you're making your way, they, what they'll tell you is it's possible, we don't really know, but it's quite possible that the point was 
was to force the pilgrim, even symbolically, to be considering who it was that they were coming into the, 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 the company of, the presence of, to do so with intentionality and forethought as you're having to literally watch your step, making your way up the, uh, to the temple. Well, that's something that applies to prayer today. Um, uh, an appropriate mindfulness that we would have in knowing who it is that we are praying to, who it is we are coming into the presence of, who it is that we are coming to adore and confess and give our thanks and, and make petition and supplication to. Uh, Jesus is saying here quite clearly, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Jesus is saying quite clearly, listen, you, you need to understand as you're, as you're coming into prayer, you need to understand who it is you're praying to. You're coming to pray to your heavenly Father. That's the, that's the fundamental thing, the foundational thing where it all begins knowing who it is we are praying to, praying to our heavenly Father, because that then shapes what and how we will pray. Understanding to whom we are praying has everything to do in terms of its shaping and influence as to what and how we will then pray. Now then, who are we praying to? We're praying to our Father in heaven. Jesus calls us to, to pray to God as our Father in heaven with the idea that that changes utterly the focus of our prayers. And you see that in the petitions as you read through this prayer, these six petitions. It shapes it. It frames it in every way. It's not that we go. We, it's not that we're we're not coming with our needs. We are coming with our needs. But it frames and shapes how we come with our needs, reordering our understanding and our priorities, uh, truly in the way that they they ought to be. Now the plan is today, this week, we're going to look at the first of the three petitions, the first of the three requests, and then the plan is next week to look at the the second set of the the three petitions, the th- those those requests. So the first set being having to do with praying over, praying in regards to God's name and then God's rule and then God's will. His name, his rule, and his will, by the way, as opposed to ours. His name, his rule, his will, and that framing everything. Okay, let's look at these points in turn. First, the name of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, it probably would be good at this point just to kind of time out and talk about some of the terms just in this first request. What what does this mean, hallowed be your name? The name of God. So this, this is not something that, you know, Jesus is walking around with a name tag Hi, my name is. That, that's not what this is about. It's not, it's not a name that is spoken. It's not a name that, that is written down. In, in biblical parlance, what the name refers to is the character. The name refers to the, the person. So the name of God is the person. It's he, he himself. He himself. So keep that in mind. Now, hallowed be the name. Hallowed is the verb form of the, the, the noun holy. Okay, so hold him up, hold this person up, honor them, revere them, sanctify them. May, may we know that this person, the name, is holy. Hallowed be your name. That's what we're praying, that, that he would be 
honored, that he would be revered. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, but, but, but wait a minute, he, he's already holy. We just sang holy, holy, holy. I mean, what? we're not changing anything there. It was not by praying this, we make him holy. Well, that's not the point. The point is that he would be exalted in the way that he is due, that he would be seen truly and rightly honored and revered. He is not hallowed. That's the point. As you look across this world, as you look in his church amidst his people, as you look in our own hearts, the person in the mirror, he is not hallowed. And so the prayer is that he would be. Hallowed be your name. May you be fully, finally, truly, rightly given what you are due. You think in terms of all the effort, all the, the labor that goes into, say, the, the building of some memorial, right? So you, you have to deal with the local politicians, you raise the funds, you clear the site, you get the design, you, you build it, or, or think in terms of all the trouble, all the work that goes into a ceremony that is meant to honor some, some person. And so you, you secure the venue, you, you, you send out the invitations, you get the entertainment, you get the speakers, you get the food, you get, you get, why? Why all the trouble? Why all the work? Whether it's a memorial or the ceremony, because you want other people to recognize the accomplishments of this individual, whoever she or he may be. You want other people to honor them, see them, appraise them, and praise them as you do. Christian, this is exactly the posture that we should have as we look out into the world and into the church and into our hearts, a longing that God would be honored in the way that he is due, that he would be hallowed in every, every imaginable way, that he would be honored, that he would be revered, that he would be trusted, that he would be obeyed, that he would be worshiped, that he would be served. That ought to be our longing. Hallowed be your name. This is part of the model prayer from the, the very start. And again, why do we pray this way? Because he is not. Because he is not. And so we pray. We, we, oh, I should also add, we, we are never more sane. We are never more sane. We are never living more in accord with how things are than when we do, in fact, hallow his name, honor him, revere him as the exalted one that, that he is. We are never more sane. We are never more human than when we do that. Now, what would that mean? Hallowed be your name, Lord, across the face of this globe, in this news report that I am reading right here, in the church, the global church, the Western church, the, the, the United States, the church in the United States, the, this region, this presbytery, this church, in my family, in my community, in here, would you be hallowed? Would you be honored? Would you be revered? Would you be adored? Would you be trusted and obeyed? in every way, in every way, in every arena of my life, in all my thoughts, in, every, in all my words, in all my actions, 
in all things, all the time, now and forever. That's the prayer. That's what starts. That's the first of the the requests. Once we recognize who we're praying to. Jesus is calling us to pray to our Father in heaven. That, That shapes, that frames, it changes, shifts the whole agenda in terms of how we are to pray, recognizing who we are praying to. And it begins with this, the the name of God, the name of God. Now, moving to the second request, moving from the name of God, we get to the rule of God. And we, so just pushing a little further, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Again, it probably would be helpful at this point to think, okay, well, what what kind of term are not, what what are these, what's the term? What, what, What does this mean? What does this mean to pray, our kingdom come? Well, you know, if you're reading through the gospel of Matthew, here's what you've seen in terms of either implicit or explicit mentions of the king and the kingdom. So Matthew 1 is the genealogy of the king, this royal figure from the line of David who is coming. Matthew 2 you get the coming of the Magi. That's right, Christmas is next month. Um, The coming of the Magi. We have come seeking out one who was born king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 3, you get to the baptism of Jesus and this magnificent voice that comes out echoing forth from heaven itself, the voice of blessing and approval and and, uh, a benediction, I guess you could say, upon from the Father to the Son. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then you get to chapter 4, and you have the summary of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What the kingdom is referring to there is the restoration of the rule and reign of God. That's Jesus' message, the gospel, the good news of the restoration of the rule and reign of God on this earth. That's his message, the gospel of the kingdom. It's really good news indeed. You were wondering when I was going to work a C.S. Lewis something in here. Here it is. For mere Christianity, this golden quote from that classic. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Well, that then takes us to the next thing, and that's kind of playing, understanding the, 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 the terms and the concepts of the king and the kingdom having come. What does it mean, though, to, to, to pray, your kingdom come? What? I don't understand. I thought he was the king already. I thought he was already on his throne. I thought the kingdom was already here. I don't get it. Well, see, that's the thing. There's a tension. He is the king And the kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. He has come, but he's coming again. We live in between the times in what the New Testament refers to as the last days, between the first and second coming of the king. So we are praying that um, 
that kingdom reign and rule would be manifested, known, partially now, fully then. That would be the great longing of our hearts, the greatest longing of our hearts. Our prayer being, Lord, may your rule, may your reign, may your hand, may your might, may your power break forth upon the darkness of this world like the dawning of the sun coming up over that horizon, piercing through the fog and the darkness wherever that light touches. May it come. Your kingdom come. May it come. Your kingdom come. What would it mean to pray like this? It would mean, at least partially, that the gospel message would go forth that our standing can be secured in this kingdom as citizens and subjects of this kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our standing with that king can be secure. It also, though, means that all the implications of his being the king in this world going forth as far as the curse is found such that we would see, see things in this world through the eyes of our king that all disease, all emptiness, all brokenness, all poverty, all injustice, all racism, we would understand as being not the way it's supposed to be. And they're in praying and working against it because we have the eyes of our king. And we are, as Lewis says, agents of sabotage. The king having landed. So the message going forth and all of its implications, all of the upside down, inside out implications of the kingdom as we, again, look out across this world. Israel and Palestine. Helicopters crashing in the Mediterranean. Vanderbilt Hospital. Austin P. University. My wicked heart. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now and forever. That being the agenda. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Knowing who we're praying to changes everything, means everything in terms of what and how we pray. Which takes us to the third and final point, at least for today. Uh, And that being not just the name of God and the rule of God, but the will of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, some clarifiers. What does Jesus mean here when he speaks of your will be done? It's it's a rich term, Old Testament, New Testament, as, as you dwell and do a study on this. It can mean one of two things, basically, two big headings. One would be his sovereign will. That is to say, God's, as the king, his will of decree, uh, his, his sovereign plans and purposes for this world. Now, how, how would we find out what that is? Pick up any good history book. 
That's how you find out. That's how we can know for sure what his plans and purposes are for the world because you can see what happened. Well, then that must have been his plans and purposes for the world because that's his sovereign will of decree. You can see a record of it in objective, clear history. Okay, so that's one way of understanding this, but another way would be not just his sovereign will, but his moral will. This would be his commands, his statutes, uh, what he has set forth. What do you read about that? In his word, in the scriptures. You want to know what his sovereign will is, read your history book. You want to know what his moral will is, read the scriptures. Old and New Testament. Okay, then which is it? When Jesus is telling us to pray to our Father that His will be done, which of those is it? His sovereign will or His moral will? And it's interesting, the commentators are split on this. I don't know that we actually have to choose. It may be something of a synthesis of the two. Here's what I mean by that. It has to do a lot with, simply with the shape and posture of our response to what he's doing and what he's commanding. So you think just, if you want to split them up in two, so thinking in terms of his sovereign will, okay, um, that we, our posture towards uh, what, what is playing out, his sovereign will, his purposes and plans, we would desire that and not resist it. No matter what the circumstances may be, we would not try and manipulate or manage or control, but rather we would be at peace trusting what he is at work doing. That would be thinking about his sovereign will, but then also trusting in terms of his moral will. Again, thinking in terms of what we read in the Scriptures, desiring that, not resisting that. Again, no matter the circumstances, plunging ourselves ever deeper, reading and submitting ourselves to what we find here in in the Scriptures with a posture of trust, of trust and and, and readiness. In fact, Jesus even qualifies it for us. He says we are to pray to our Father, longing that His will be done. What's the qualification? It's there, right there in the text. On earth as it is in heaven. Okay, now think with me. How is His will received in heaven? How do the angels respond to the revelation of his sovereign will and his moral will? With gladness, with receptiveness, with a sense of immediacy and appreciation and longing to want to know more and to to walk and live and move and breathe in that and, and, and nothing else. Or put another way, that I guess you could say the prayer in terms of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that this earth would look a whole lot more like heaven and less like hell. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your decrees, may your decrees and your desires be carried out and embraced and known. What would that mean for you and I that, again, whether you think of it, whether you think in terms of his sovereign will or his moral will, again, but that that sense of trust. He is our Father in heaven. He is our provider, our protector, this beautiful, wonderful presence with us all the time. Yes, when the times are hard, recognizing that time, that there's not, not being Pollyannish and calling them easy times when they're hard, but rather, again, trusting ourselves 
and those circumstances to him, not abiding by the instinct which says, seize the wheel, gain control. My will be done. No, not my will be done. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That being the prayer, struggling through even with that. This being the great corrective that Jesus is giving us to our fretting, which so inevitably leads to our faithlessness, our disobedience, our turning our backs away from Him, rather a trusting, a trusting. Who are we praying to? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, longing that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, transforming, shifting the focus of our our prayers. Again, our view of God has everything in terms of its implications. Our view of who God is shapes our prayers to God. Our view of God shapes our prayers to God. If, if you believe in your heart of hearts that God is distant and not really concerned with anything in your life, you will hardly pray to Him at all. And if you do, there'll be very little heart in it at all. If you believe that he is distant, now, if you believe that he is basically a cosmic dispenser and your relationship with him is on a contractual basis, well then, you will have lofty expectations as to what you deserve and you'll be grossly disappointed and disillusioned when you don't get what you want. But if he is, in fact, our Father in heaven, then we can come to him with all of our needs. And Jesus is showing us the way, taking us by the hand as our concerns are rightly framed in this, in this prayer. Who we're praying to changes everything in terms of what and how we pray. Let me read you this story. It's an account. Some of you may be familiar with this man. John Patton, 19th century missionary, uh, Scottish, I believe, to cannibals in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, okay? Uh, this is an account of the day, it's from his diary. It's an account of the day that his father saw him off to his internship that then would prove to be the last time these two men saw each other. And, and they knew it would probably be that way. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversations on that parting journey are as fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. Tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted, reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it and walking away have often, often all through life risen vividly before my mind. 
the relationship shaped everything. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have God as your Father in heaven right now. Think with me the implications of that. His knowledge of you, his care over you, his love for you beyond anything you can imagine. You think in terms like what we used to say to our our peers on the playground. What's your father do? Oh, my father? He rules the cosmos. And he loves me. And I'm his own. What's your father do? Whose are you? Whose are you? How does that approach, how should that affect how you approach him? How should that affect how you think of him? How, the the confidence that you have in his presence, how you come to him with your concerns. Jesus says, come, come to him as your heavenly father. And let that shape everything everything in terms of the focus of your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, we were made for relationship with you. We were made for communication with you. And we know the grounds of this relationship are unlike any any other relationship. It is completely by grace. It is unlike any other relationship that we are in. The grounds of how we can be uh, with you and you with us. And so it really should hardly surprise us that if the grounds of the relationship are so different, that the nature of the communication ought to be different too. Your priorities absolutely shaping ours. As our great king, we can call you yet still father. We can come to you with all of our needs, and you want us to. You bid us to do that. But coming in a way that is rightly framed, reordered desires. Oh, Jesus, would you please reorder our desires? As your disciples asked you then, we're asking you now, help us to pray. Help us to pray. And this we ask in your name.